Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, you are so kind. You are so long-suffering. You are so patient with us. Please, Father, help us on this, this morning, this Lord's Day morning, after a long weekend of family, of food, of friends, Father, to get our minds settled back on you. To Please, we ask you that you would allow us to focus, to comprehend, to desire, to apply that which you teach us this morning. Help us to engage in your word as we desire to grow in, in knowledge and in grace in our spiritual maturity, Father, that we might image your Son as you called us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in the study, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. Um, I'm going to be teaching the next three Sunday schools. Um, I've broken up the doctrine of sin into part one and part two because really about halfway he changes gears on, on uh, sin and he takes it in a little more comprehensive way, the second part. So I thought um, I don't want to miss over it. I don't want to pick one or the other or go over either too quickly. So we're going to separate them out. And then the third week of, um, or, or uh, three weeks from today, um, will be, uh, it'll be the doctrine of sin in everyday life. What does it look like to apply that in our lives? So again, this is a study by Paul Tripp. Do you believe 12, 12 do- historic doctrines to change your everyday life? And that's what we're interested in doing in, in uh, honoring our Lord and Savior. So I've got, oh, there goes my mic guy. <laughs> Paul, I think we're over here. Oh, got it. You need a pen. Wonderful. Let's go ahead and get started um, with whoever wants to start reading. Um, Our first parents at the top, that first paragraph there. If you want to just... It's just that small uh, first paragraph, and then I will uh, ask some questions. Our first parents, who were seduced by the subtle and tempting lies of Satan sinned in eating the fruit that God had forbidden. Because of this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and, as a result, became dead in sin and completely corrupt in every faculty and every part of their soul and body. So, two two components he's bringing to our attention. Their original righteousness was changed or corrupted, and so was their communion with God. We don't want to conflate those two and miss... The, the distinct differences of, of what each component brings to our understanding of what happened at the, with the fall. So the first question is, what is the name, and this is an easy one, this is a softball, so maybe we'll get dialed back in here. What is the name of this two-word doctrine that deals with, and then I'm going to reread uh, the, the end of the second line there into the third line that Pete just read, as a, re- as a result, uh, we, in other words, became dead in sin and completely corrupt in every faculty and every part of, the, of our soul and body. What is that? Anybody want it? And Paul, where's Paul again? There you go. Anyone want to answer that? And then we got Glenda over here. I gave you a little hint. Total depravity. Yeah, excellent. Wonderful. And just a good reminder, it's something that as a young Christian, I certainly did not, I never was taught in mainstream evangelicalism. Um, and didn't have a, a comprehension of it uh, from a standpoint of theology, but I certainly knew it practically. Um, and so the, the, the follow-up question is, does it mean that, uh, that, referencing total depravity, does it mean that human beings are as evil as they could possibly be? And if you could expand on your, on your 
answer. Anybody want to take that one on? You're going a little bit deeper. All right, Jamie. Not every human is as evil as he could possibly be. Those who have turned toward God and renewing their hearts are less so. But everyone has the capacity to be as evil as he could possibly be. Okay, I like that, the way you worded that. Jake, Jacob, are we getting feedback when the mic is used? It seemed like a little some humming or something. Got it. It's me? Okay, sounds good out there. Wonderful. All right, so... There's a pushback when you hear total depravity, and that is, well, that means that everybody's as, as evil as they could possibly be, and that's just not the case because we got some people like Hitler, and then we got some people like the little old granny that, that uh, is walking across the street, and, and she's as innocent as it can be, although she doesn't know the Lord. So how do you, how do you uh, reconcile those two differences? And that is that um, what it was stated here is that uh, every faculty and every part of the soul and body are affected or corrupted by sin, but not to the degree, in other words, the degrees vary. So we have the little old lady crossing the crosswalk, and we have the um, Hitler. So we have varying degrees of evil, but we all have, unfortunately, the capability, as Jamie said, to be that evil if we were to allow that evilness to continue onward and have the seared conscience that uh, the New Testament talks about where we just, we no longer have the mechanism of our conscience helping us and convicting us and letting us know that you can't do that without feeling overwhelming guilt in your soul. Some, some type of shame, I should say. Okay, so I just wanted to touch on that. It was an opportunity to make sure we had a clarification about uh, total depravity. Let's continue on with our reading. Since Adam is the root of mankind, the guilt of his sin was imputed reckoned or charged to one's account, our legal standing before God is guilty, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature were conveyed to all who descended from him by ordinary generation. Our state of being is now fallen. From this original corruption, we are utterly disinclined, disabled, and antagonistic to all that is good, and we are wholly inclined to all that is evil. It is from this original corruption that all transgression proceeds." During this life, this corruption of nature continues to remain in those who have been regenerated by God's grace. Though it has been pardoned and put to death through Jesus Christ, this corruption of nature and all the ways it is expressed are still, in fact, sin. Okay, so a couple things we want to make sure we um, land on here. Go back to the first paragraph that PJ read as it deals with the word imputed. That's a strange word. We don't use it in today's uh, everyday conversation. Um, it's, it's got a theological context that it primarily uh, falls in, and it means to be reckoned or charged to one's account. So when we are seen as guilty, so our guilt is imputed by way of what Adam has done, we are the offspring. He, he speaks of this as ordinary generation to generate the next people to, to have children. That's what he's talking about. So in, our, in having offspring, uh, our status of guilt is imputed from one to the next. Um, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as original sin that is carried down. And then our state of being is fallen. That's the corrupted state. So we're dealing with a legal status as well as a practical status of corruption in our lives. Okay, 
Let's continue on with the, the understanding the doctrine of sin. Okay. The biblical truth that we are considering here lies at the very uh, epicenter of Christian doctrine. Along with the ex- existence of God, it is, a, it is a significant worldview watershed. If you believe there is no such thing as sin in the way the Bible describes it, you then, one, see no need for God's moral law, two, the wisdom of Scripture, three, dependency on God, and four, the rescuing grace of the Redeemer, oh, f- five, the ministry of the church, or six, the bright hope of eternity. Okay, so these are the five, what I'm, I'm labeling, he didn't list them as this, but to me it just made sense. These are the, the six blind spots that those that do not believe uh, potentially have. And let me go over these blind spots again. So you see, no, you see no need for God's moral law. That is the law that directs us with, as, as it relates to morality. Uh, the wisdom of Scripture. We don't, there's, there's no value in Scripture because you don't see the wisdom to it. The dependency on God. Why, why depend on, on God on my own person? The rescuing grace of, of the Redeemer. Why do I need rescuing? I don't even see sin. Uh, meaning that I don't recognize it as a category uh, in my life. The ministry of the church, the church is just for people who need a crutch to get through life, uh, and the bright hope of eternity. In other words, what's to come afterwards? You miss all that. These are blind spots for people. So the question I'm posing you, and I'm hoping to get a little more conversation on this, how does knowing that the lost have these six blind spots aid you in knowing where to start in evangelism. So in evangelism, if you go to some of the TV evangelists, you will hear an evangelism that is not a gospel evangelism. They will tell you things like you can have your best life now. If you do X, God will bless you with Y. And that's the, that's the evangelism that they are, are, are uh, trying to promote to get followers, not necessarily to bring about salvation by way of what God has deemed. So as you understand these blind spots, how does this help inform you or aid you in knowing where to start with true evangelism, not come to church and God will bless you evangelism? Praise the Lord. I'm living my worst life now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Um, Amen uh, to that. So I, I, I love the way this is laid out. Um, where I go first in evangelism is um, thinking in the, in the form of a Romans 2, where even the good actions um, reveal that the law is written on their hearts. So I start with pointing out morality and, that, mm. and show them their own morality. Mm. It's always nice to start with, look how good you are. Um, show morality, but then ask, where does morality come from? Like, who, if we're all specks and floating like what is good what is bad why do you know certain things are bad and certain things are good and from there go well how do we decide these things and take it to scripture and show well because we are given it and look we've been lined out these things and in fact even the morality that you know without having read scripture is on your heart from god Um, and take them from morality and an understanding of oh i know right and wrong because of of this this is how i can better know right and wrong what I've done is wrong. How do I get sa- What's the consequence of wrong? How do I get saved from wrong? And, and just progress down the chain, ideally, if they let you hang around that long. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's a, that's a great word. 
Anybody else? Uh, we got Glenda over here. Sean, did you want to comment then also? Okay. A question you might ask them is, so what do you do with your guilt? And let them think about that for a while, because it looks like guilt might run through each of these six that you could start a conversation with, depending on that answer. And here again, if they are overcome with guilt, they're going to listen. If they're not, it's like PJ said, discussion is over. But that seems to be kind of a pointed question. It's good. Yeah, because guilt deals with, guilt is a legal standing. We use it in American language as a, a, as a metaphor for feeling. It's actually not a feeling, biblically. Guilt is a legal standing. But that's okay. If they use guilt, go with it. Okay, so you feel guilty. What do you feel guilty? Why do you feel guilty? You know, all the, you're going down that path of guilt because you can work them to, you are in a legal standing of guilt. And you have been pronounced guilty because, and then you get to, uh, or by whom, and because. So that's good, Glenda. Uh, Sean, were you going to comment? So PJ was talking about the, um, getting them awakened to the reality of moral standards, that there, are, there is true objective morality, right? And then this idea of guilt, Glenda's talking about that, that correlates to that. And then, um, so eventually, you know, you can wind them back to um, the ultimate reason that we feel those things is because there is a, a holy God, right? That, that God is a perfect standard of morality, right? And that um, he's created us in his image, you know, and then, and therefore, we have this conscience, we have this sense of uh, responsibility to that standard that he sets, right? But I do think, you know, so you could kind of wind around, hey, what's better to start with the holiness of God and then proceed to morality and those things? Or should you start with morality? I, I really like PJ's thoughts on that because, because it seems to correlate heavy with like C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity and the idea of just awaken them to the things they already know are true rather than maybe trying to tell them something um, about God first. Um, awaken them to, to these realities that they know are true in their heart and then you can and then uh, move logically towards towards God. I think that just makes sense. No, it does. Yeah. I, uh, I like to address another group of, uh, of believers that uh, find it awkward to start evangelizing. Okay, and I I think these six areas is a great introduction for those who feel it uh, who feel it's be difficult to have a starting point. To evangelize with somebody. That's good. One of the things that you that you guys are hitting on is that morality. We all have some sense as, as uh, a sense of morality as Christians. Excuse me, as image bearers of God. You don't have to be a Christian to have a sense of morality. That is the the. The original writing of, of, of God's law on our hearts, that we have a sense of right and wrong, and we know it. So if you can prick that sense, I mean, if they know it, and I can, show, I can demonstrate this to you at the easiest level, would it be wrong for me to kill you as you're sitting in the plane seat next to me? Probably not the conversation you want to have with a stewardess around thinking, hey, you got a bomb! Uh, but would it be wrong for me to kill you? Of course it would be. They would go, absolutely, that's wrong. Okay, based on, then you went, see where he went there? 
Who? Who gets to determine that? God. So you've moved from morality to God. So you've moved on morality deals with the sin issue. And you don't have to say the word sin, but you're dealing with those issues. So it's this doctrine of sin informs us even at the, the, the beginning point of our evangelism. And we need to remember that anybody, you can have a conversation with anybody on right and wrong. Let them pick the topic of right and wrong. And then, and then you work your way back to, well, what if, you are, what if you do wrong? What about penalty? What about punishment? Why? Sin, all that other different stuff. So anyways, I just want to make sure that we see that the doctrine of sin isn't just this understanding that we as Christians hold dear and yet we hold close to the vest and we don't use it to inform us. We needed to remind us that ourselves that we use it to inform us on how to engage the world and how to meet them and their need just as somebody met you and your need and shared the gospel with you. Somebody let, was able to communicate that you have a need for a savior. The only way you, they, you can communicate that is if they realize there's a consequence that has occurred that causes a need for a savior. That consequence is sin. So we need to remember that. Okay, let's continue on. Um, uh, let me read that little two-lined, two italicized uh, line, and then the next person can read on. There are really only two groups of people when it comes to the human drama. Those who put their hopes in human systems of redemption and those who see that human hope requires a redeemer. That's interesting, the way he worded that and how he categorized that. So he has presupposed that even the image bearer who denies God knows that they have a need for redemption. They know they have done wrong somewhere in their life that needs payment for that wrong. They have to make that wrong right somehow. It's a, it's a truth that is worth the time of, of meditation on it and so you can work through how do I approach it with the next person that the Lord allows to to cross my path and I have the, the opportunity to engage them in a conversation of evangelism. What, what is tomorrow hold for you? Those kind of things. Okay, let's read on to the next uh, paragraph. One of the sad results of sin is that the average sinner on the street carries with him little, if any, awareness of understanding or guilt of sin. Sin is no longer a category in people's lives or in our culture. Sin is not viewed as a tool that explains people's motivations or behavior. The concept of sin is not taught in philosophy or psychology classes at your local university. Sin is not a category that shapes our view of law enforcement. The truth of human sinfulness doesn't shape the way most people think about racial injustice, totalitarianism, or abuse. The doctrine of sin isn't typically used to help counselors understand the difficulties of marriage and parenting. Sin isn't understood to be the force behind the pornification of popular medication media. Few people think that corruption of politics and government has anything to do with sin. When sin is a category you've left behind, you have to explain human tragedies in some other way. If you do not believe in the tragedy and universality universality of sin, then you will think that humans have the power to fix humans. So you put your hope in education, politics, philosophy, psychology, medicine, and so on. 
All right, so here's the question for us. What are other places our society and even uh, you or me have mistakenly placed your hope? And I will share with you, I'll get the ball rolling here, that as a young man part of a works-based faith, I put my, my hope in a, in a religious system. You can even as a Christian finding yourself deferring back to a system rather than a person. Some of you know that when uh, we were thinking about what to name the church, we didn't name the church North Phoenix Baptist Church. Oops, I shouldn't have used that one because there's actually a name. We didn't use a location for a name because we wanted to be, always be reminded that there is a person. That person is our hope. So that is why this church is named Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church. We always want to keep that forefront so we don't fall into systems and systems, even well-intended, God-designed systems. We corrupt them by thinking that, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, God's happy with me, and he will, and, and God will bless me. Oops, I've fallen back into workspace theology. Okay, so what are some other ways that our society, or even you, have mistakenly placed your hope? What are some categories? Uh, uh, Monica has one. He's going to bring you the mic, Monica. The criminal justice system. Mm. Sir, that's, that's good. We'll, we'll place our hope in a, in a system that is intended to bring about justice or righteousness, or maybe even saying righteous justice, justice that is according to God. Um, but we see it does not always work. It's, it is filled with fallible. It is filled with sinners. In fact, most of the time, in my interaction within the criminal justice system, as it, I'm sure Pete could attest to, is most of the people that are within the system are not believers that, um, that you interact with. So your expectation of, of absolute justice is going to be flawed, and you're praying that, that, that there is a a godly level of justice that is carried out. Jamie, or excuse me, Monica's got more there. After you, Gary. I'm sorry. Yeah. Whoever, back it, and forth. It was uh, set up by a me- people who are sinners. You know, if it was a, a God system, that would be different, but it's not. It's man trying to address the problems of man. Absolutely. And with, even when we have Christians within the criminal justice system, Christians sin. We see this doctrine of sin still corrupting justice. Uh, Gary? Well, we tend to put uh, our, our hope in a political system, in a political party, which ultimately leads to a person, a political person. That's good. Um, and we got some back there. We got uh, Ruthie and uh, Jane. Sorry, Jane. <laughs> I'm two weeks gone and I've forgotten names. <laughs> Um, I would say for me, I create my systems, and then I rely on their systems, but it all leads back to me, right? So it's this Mm. idea of being able to live a successful life or a a healthy life by me setting it up, by me creating the standards, right? And so I would say it's, it's a personal system set up for success, and that's where I find my hope. Okay. So is it, is, would it be right to say you find your hope in you then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's I. That anytime, 
I've come offline during the day and I, and I realize I've, I've sinned, I realize I've become the one I'm relying on. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Jane? Education. Uh, there is, I mean, the growth of like Christian colleges and the Christian school movement and all that uh, were an effort, I think, to um, train uh, our young people to, uh, on biblical principles, you know, so that when they were growing up, they would go into society and change the world. And even when the, um, the uh, homeschool movement started, and we got in on it kind of in the ground floor in the late 80s and, uh, and into the 90s, and there were um, writers that were um, publishing in their magazines, you know, about have a big family and homeschool your kids and we'll multiply and multiply and pretty soon, you know, our, our smart kids will take over and be in politics, you know, and all that and uh, mm. save the world kind of thing, you know. And uh, really, you know, the hope was that education, Christian education was going to change things. Fascinating. Pete's got one up here. I think that uh, even our society creates its own uh, its own climate of acceptability. You know, the kind of a phrase that gets used now is virtue signaling. Mm. So, okay, this new thing is acceptable. So now I want to go public. I want people to to see in social media um, that I am associated with this movement because that that is where virtue is currently in the culture. Uh, you know. Five years ago, that same thing would have been looked down on, but now we declare it as virtuous. So now I want to be identified with that. So I find my um, identity in showing the world that I am behind this group that stands for this particular, um, you know, movement. Sure. And so, and so we we gain uh, or people gain confidence and they gain identity because they want to they want to they want to fit in with the current uh, no virtual. that's good looks like you're just, pj's going to add too yeah just was going to add actually to what um monica was saying earlier about um the institutions created by man i mean even better we, we've had institutions directly handed to us by god whether it was the judges or whether it's kings to rule and we've corrupted it all even in the way we ask for a king we corrupt for it even sure. when god has a plan for it and beyond all of that i would say with with all of this god has lined out his law clearly and explicitly um in the moral law of the ten commandments but then the specifics of the Levitical law. Um, and so e even when we have every single detail laid out in front of us and there is no need for these other institutions to determine, say, morality or um, to put our faith in those things, uh, it's a lot more comfortable and less, uh, more pleasant to put our, our faith and trust in things that aren't as explicitly pointing out um, our sin. That's good. Okay, let's continue on. Who's got the, the uh, next little small paragraph there? And then I'm going to jump in and uh, read under the category of context.
All of these things are beneficial, but they have no power whatsoever to rescue us from the darkness, deceit, destruction, and death that sin has rained down on us all. If, however, you believe that the deepest problem for every human being is sin, and if you believe that no human being is able to escape it, then you know that together we cannot save ourselves. If there is such a thing as sin living in the heart of everyone, then our only hope is divine intervention. So I've written there for context. I say, listen carefully to how the author contextualizes the gospel based on what he has talked about thus far. He, I, don't, I don't know if he does this on purpose, I don't know, I, but I can tell you that as I'm reading this, I realize this is the perfect example. He's had a conversation with us on the first page, and he's laid out what, he, he, we, that, what we were engaged in conversation. Now he's going to take that conversation, he's going to turn, turn it towards the gospel in just a, an a, a very nondescript way. It's, listen how many ways he connects back to our conversation and our need for God. So whoever reads next, uh, you can read that whole paragraph. I, I just think it's, a, again, a wonderful example of contextualizing or listening carefully or using the content of your conversation to help identify how you're going to open up the gospel to the person you're, you're conversing with. Okay. Who's got this one? Oh, she's got to put it up. Sorry about that. The cry of everyone in the face of the brokenness, danger, disappointments, difficulties, and injustices of life in this sin-scarred world is actually a cry for God and his redeeming, rescuing, and restoring grace, whether the person crying knows it or not. The doctrine of sin tells us that the hope of humanity will never be delivered by humanity but will come only by means of God's intervening grace. This truth really is one of the great dividing lines. If you believe it, it will fundamentally change the way you view view yourself and what you need. You're thinking about the meaning and purpose for life, your view of right and wrong, your perspective of what is true and false, where you look for comfort and strength, what is important to you and what is not, and where true, sturdy, and lasting hope can be found. If sin is the ultimate cancer, then there is no cure to be found outside of the intervening mercies of redeeming grace. If sin is the problem, then God is our only hope. I I read that that paragraph probably five times. Just, it was masterful to me how he connected all of the previous conversation together. He says, whether the person knows it or not, they're crying out for God when they are disappointed, when they are, they are broken, when they are uh, in danger, when they're dealing with difficulties, when they're dealing with justices. To say that to the person, whether you know it or not, you're actually crying out to God, will stop them in their track. Now, you may lose them, as PJ talked about. They may say, you know, here's, here's a nut job trying to, to share, you know, he's a Jesus freak or whatever. Or you may get them to contemplate and really think for the first time. And maybe it's both. Maybe they call you a nut job and then later they contemplate what you're, this, the depth of this conversation that no one's had the, the courage to connect for them before. To where they just, it pricks at their heart. They can't let go of this thought. Okay, let's continue on. It is so important for us to understand what we mean when we say we believe in the doctrine of sin. Sin is the ultimate bomb, leaving a trail of destruction in its path. Sin is the ultimate pandemic, infecting everyone, leaving everyone sick. Sin is the ultimate curse, sentencing everyone to death. 
Sin is the ultimate deceit, telling you the endless lies and making promises it can't keep. Sin is the ultimate inter- interruption, changing the human story forever. It takes your breath away when you consider that Adam and Eve's selfish, idolatrous, and rebellious choice in the garden cursed every human being who would follow them. Yes, even you and me. The disaster is not only that Adam and Eve were punished for their sin, it is also that because of sin, they became completely different people, no longer perfectly righteous in word, thought, and action. They were now corrupt in every way, no longer lovers of God and his law. Adam and Eve were were now alienated from God and attracted to what is evil in God's sight. And all of this is passed down to their children and their children's children and every generation that would follow. Sin is heartbreaking, tragic drama of human history. Sin shattered shalom, and we are still dealing with the horrible results every day. All right, in the interest of time, I'm going to make this a rhetorical question, but I hope it grabs you. If sin caused Adam and Eve to become completely different people, what should be true about those whom Christ has saved out of the curse of sin? Should we not be completely different people? If you were an unbeliever and you went to your 10-year high school reunion and you became a believer shortly after high school, it's almost as if they should not recognize you because you are so completely different from whom they knew. And I say that as a, as a challenge to me, myself. I'm, I, interestingly enough, I was going to, uh, I got a call that, hey, some of the people from my high school were getting together. And uh, um, anyways, I started thinking, how many of them wouldn't recognize me because I wasn't a believer in high school? Sure, I was a nice kid but I was not a believer, meaning that how has my theology changed me so that I am so distinctly different that they go, man, I just feel like there's something so different about you, Nick. Or they blatantly know, and you, got, you can't stop talking about God or you keep drawing God into the conversation or whatever it happens to be, that's our challenge. If Adam and Eve were completely changed, and they were, and you and I have come out completely different than what God designed when we came into this world, when we were birthed into this world, and when we were reborn, why are we not chasing after that completely different reality of who we, who we can be, we're now capable of being? All right, let's continue on. To fully understand the disaster of sin and its implications for all of us, it's important to unpack the first part of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit in the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will you will be like god knowing good and evil so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was 
to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Let's continue on. To understand Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden and help how it helps us to understand the nature of sin, we will focus on two things. First, you have to understand Satan's deceitful pitch. For God knows that when you eat of, your, of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Jane, let me jump in there, and then I'll have you read the next paragraph. Um, let me jump in where it says note. I want to point out what knowing good and evil means from a biblical perspective. And let me start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God is, has experienced evil, and God didn't want us to experience evil, as if God has done some evil act. Knowing good and evil does not mean that. Now, look at the note, and let me read to you from there. Knowing good and evil is to be the one who determines what is good and evil. Adam and Eve were to learn what was good and evil in order to rule well over God's creation as his royal representatives of of the physical, earthly realm. God was continuing to reveal, continuing revelation, what was good and evil, giving them the law. In other words, it would be much like what he did, and you can see the reason why he gave the law when he establishes Israel as a nation— What is he doing? He's teaching them what is good and evil. Do this, don't do that. God is the one who determines that. We do not. So when the human being, when it says they, when Satan says, you will know good from evil, there's more than just an experience. I should say it's not dealing with the experience level. It's dealing with, and the author is going to pull that out right now so we can understand it uh, in a greater capacity. So continue on, Jane, if you wouldn't mind. Satan is not tempting Eve with a better menu than God, what God had provided. He is tempting her with autonomy and self-sufficiency. His pitch is, you can be like God. God is the only being who has ever existed that is truly autonomous and self-sufficient. His existence belongs to him to do with it whatever is his good pleasure. There is no law above God, and he is answerable to no one. He is also completely self-providing and self-sufficient. God needs nothing and requires the help and assistance of no one. He knows everything without ever having been taught, and he can do everything without training or help. The point is that Satan's pitch to Eve actually defines who God is and is impossible for a human being. The attraction is far more than succulent fruit it is godlike autonomy and self-sufficiency. All right, let's continue on. It is also important to understand what hooked Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. The seductive hook that ensnared Eve wasn't that this was the most beautiful fruit she had ever seen, although it was attractive. 
No, the phase it was desire, desirous to make one wise is what magnetized Eve. The, this phase would, should get your attention. Why would Eve be hungry for wisdom when she was in a perfect relationship with the one who was and is the ultimate source of everything that is wise? Why wasn't God's wisdom enough for her? I'm going to turn this into a rhetorical question as well so we can get through the study. Um, this is one that uh, hopefully you will be able to answer in your time of meditation. This is one that hopefully you'll be able to answer. You will, it will come to your mind after you have sinned. Whatever that next sin is, I hope this comes to your mind and you answer this question. Why isn't God's wisdom enough for, for me as you, as you realize you just sinned? Why do we seek to do what is right in our own eyes? Answering that question will help you in your desire to be transformed in your heart that you sin less. Let's continue on. What attracted Eve was not just wisdom, but autonomous wisdom. That is, wisdom that did not require reliance on and submission to God. The only one who has ever existed who is independently wise is God. He alone has never needed a teacher, counselor, mentor, or guide. He alone knows everything about everything. The creator knows how his creation is meant to operate and how the creatures made in his image are designed to live. He is wisdom's ultimate source. Eve wants God's position. She does not want to be dependent on God. She wants to be him. In this moment, Eve inserts herself in the middle of her world and makes, her, makes life all about her. When I read the, this account of the fall and what attracted Eve to this disastrous moment, I think about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves. Mm. In that moment in the garden, Eve is living for herself, and because she is, she will disobey God and eat what, it has, what he has forbidden. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.15 is that the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin really does make life all about me. Sin causes me to shrink my world down to the size of my wants, my needs, and my feelings. Eugene Peterson says that sin causes us to replace the Holy Trinity with a new trinity, but the three-personal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is replaced by a very individualized personal trinity of my holy wants, my holy needs, and my holy feelings. Sin is self-absorbed, self-focused, self-aggrandizing, self-importance, and selfish in the truest sense of what those words mean. Because of sin, one, we want our own way, two, we want to write our own rules, and three, we don't want anything in our way. Sorry about that. Or <laughs> for anyone telling us what to do. Sin turns all of us into glory thieves, causing us to want what rightfully belongs to God alone. The idol itself is, ultimate, is the ultimate idolatry. It is the idol from which every other form of idolatry flows. If you worship yourself, you will then exchange worship and service of God for worship and service of created things. If you worship yourself... You will then bow before the idols of comfort and pleasure. If you worship yourself, your heart will be ruled by a desire for power and control. If you worship yourself, you will crave the praise of people. At the base of all forms of human dysfunction is the idol of self. Every sin is idolatrous. It puts us on God's throne, sovereign over our own lives and doing what is our good pleasure. So it is right for David to confess to God, against you, you only have I sinned. 
and done what is evil in your sight. Psalms 51.4. Let me, let me jump in here. If you go midway up that paragraph, I think it's fourth line. It starts, if you worship yourself, you will craves, crave the praise of people. I've told you before, that's a, a fear of man. Wanting praise from man is a personal sin that I struggle with. I remember as a young leader within the police department wanting to make decisions based on what would please people rather than ultimately what was best for people because that can be a difficult thing to communicate. Wow, if I would have known earlier, Nick, you are worshiping yourself. To hear those words in my mind when I'm tempted to fall to, to want praise immediately is I, I get this feeling of, yuck, I don't want that. I want God. I can't believe I'm falling. I'm tempted to fall to that. That's what these truths are designed to do to us as we learn these lessons. We get these in our minds and we go, I don't want this sin anymore. Let's end with this, the final paragraph there. And the thought, I'll end us with a thought to ponder after this final paragraph. In this moment in the garden, for the very first time, Eve worships something other than God. Not the thing that replaces God as the focus of Eve's worship is not wisdom. The thing that replaces God in the worship of Eve's heart is Eve. Love, self, love of self replaces love for God. And the result is that Eve rebels against the clear, wise, and loving command of God. She eats what is forbidden. When love replaces when love of self replaces love for God, there is no end to the evil that will result. So Paul says that Jesus came not so much to rescue us from the evil outside of us. No, he came to rescue us, that is, to deliver us from the evil inside of us. If I am the idol that has entrapped me, there is no escape for me. I can run from situations, locations, and relationships, but I cannot run from myself. Sin is idolatrous. Then the only hope for me is a powerful Savior, one who has the willingness and the might to free me from my bondage to sin. So we'll leave with this thought to ponder. If we discover that our situations and relationships always are plagued by problems, and they are, because we live in a sin-cursed world um, with, with other sinners and with the, the person of ourselves who are sinners. So if we discover that our situations and relationships always are plagued by problems, maybe, just maybe, we should stop running and consider how our sinfulness has contributed to whatever problem we're dealing with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to start and, and this teaching on the, the doctrine of sin. We thank you that, the, that you have gifted this author with words that help us think through our sinfulness and hate our sinfulness and, and realize new realities about our sinfulness and what, what statements our self-aggrandizement makes, our self-importance, our self, all of our selfish desires make upon what or who we are worshiping. Remind us of that in the midst of the temptation before we sin, that we might not sin against you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.